0: This morning, uh, I'm looking in First Samuel. If you've got your Bibles, turn to First Samuel chapter one. We sort of change gears here. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, preaching through First Samuel, it's going to be an interesting thing with having different preachers preach from the book and hearing different styles and, and uh, different takes on the content. Uh, and as we talk about transition, in general, as it's found in some of the passage. And I want you to understand that, that 1 Samuel as a book, uh, is, is a, there's a lot of transition, there's a lot of changes. Pastor Steve mentioned this morning, you're going from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Uh, there is a lot of change that's coming to Israel. Sometimes change is a good thing, sometimes it's bad. I want you understand change is never good simply because it's change. Right? We've had a lot of politicians over the years who promise change and one of the questions you have to ask yourself anytime change is promised is well what kind of change how are we changing why are we changing all of those questions become important anytime you're making a transition as you are moving from one thing to something else the dramatic changes that take place in first samuel and in particular chapters one through four which we're going to look at this morning have an impact on all of the other narratives that follow the changes that are present influence the history uh, what we know is history now but it influenced the events to come in their time it affects the rest of the book and it affects the rest again of their history their culture any time again there's change for those of you who uh, of an older generation you saw a very different America than what you're seeing today Uh, Even our nation is undergoing a time of of change, of transition. Uh, And not just again for your nation, for those of you who've been involved in the church uh, for most of your lives, you've seen a change in the church uh, throughout your years. Again, sometimes the change is good, sometimes it's bad. as we come to 1 Samuel, you're introduced to two primary characters uh, that are going to dominate at least the, the early chapters. One is... Samuel, as, he, as he's born and as he grows, he will become a, a prophet in Israel. He is considered, uh, from a scholarly standpoint, he's considered the last judge of Israel. He is sort of this transitional man. He's moving from the time of the judges, and he doesn't realize it in the, first, in the early chapters, but he's going to be the man who sort of helps Israel uh, accept, or get into the monarchy, uh, the reign of the king, starting with King Saul. The other man who's mentioned in these early chapters, whose story is is really not mentioned a lot in Scripture, is Eli. Eli is the high priest at Shiloh at this time. He is the one who's sort of taking care of the the religious duties of the tabernacle. He is supposed to be Israel's religious leader. He is the one setting the standard. He's the one that the people will come to for their their sacrifices, uh, to his sons for their sacrifices, uh, theoretically, for counseling, for anything else that, that maybe needed to be done by way of understanding Moses's law, understanding the parts of the Old Testament that they had. It's Eli. But Eli and Samuel, even though they work together, Samuel trains under Eli for a time, are two very different people. And in 1 Samuel 1 you have the story, sort of the back story to Samuel's birth as his mother Hannah desperately wants a child and she goes and she prays and she promises to give the child to the Lord and the Lord honors her prayer. She has a child, she, she honors her commitment then and gives him to the Lord and in chapter 2 you find her beautiful prayer uh, of praise to the Lord and, and of dedication of Samuel to the Lord. You hear uh, about Eli and his sons and the latter part of that, the judgment against them. Uh, And three, then the call of Samuel, and finally in four, a battle with the Philistines and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. There's quite a bit that goes on, and and again, there's quite a bit of change in just the first four chapters of the book. The most poignant part, though, of those four chapters, and I think the most poignant part of the change that Israel had experienced, you find in chapter four, turn there very quickly, we're going to move... Throughout those four chapters, but if you look in verse or chapter four, verse twenty-two is this part of the narrative sort of closes. It says in that that last verse, and she she being the widow of Phineas, and she said, "The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured." See, as chapter four closes, Israel's in a dark place. She's recognizing that the glory. Has departed. Now she's saying that in the specific context because of the loss of her husband, because of the loss of the Ark of the Covenant, but the glory departed. What I think she doesn't realize at that time is that the glory had departed long before, and they were just now feeling the effects. One of the things we have to be careful of in the United States today and, and in the body of Christ is understanding that the glory has departed. Or is departing. As you've seen the changes in culture, and you find a a society that's moving more and more away from the Word of God, and more and more towards the opinions of man, and whatever cultural winds might happen to be blowing at the time, you're going to see the glory departing. You see, God never blesses sin, and He never blesses those who sort of outright live in sin. I was talking this week in class. You know, you watch when I was a kid, you watch some of the awards programs that are on TV, and You'll have these artists who get up and they sing about the most immoral things possible. And then they get up on the platform and they're getting their award. And they're like, I'd just like to thank God for this award. Now look, I don't know what God they're thinking, but it's not the God of Scripture. He doesn't bless sin. You don't get to go and and live like the devil and thank the Lord for it. So the glory departs. But you see it, you'll see it in the church as well and in Christianity. That as we move away from the word in some contexts, as you find denominations who are falling to uh, sort of a hyper-liberalism and skepticism, you will see glory depart the church. Christianity today doesn't have the impact, it doesn't have the power that it had a generation ago. People aren't interested in the word of God anymore. and it, In some cases, it doesn't matter how we package it, They're just not buying it. And so the glory is departing. So what happens when the glory departs? What can we expect? Why does the glory depart? I want to see three things in 1 Samuel. Three reasons, I think, that the glory departed Israel, where it left them even though they didn't realize it, and where I think we need to be careful today in the church and in our nation. One reason the glory departs Israel is because there was a contempt for the holy. There was contempt for the holy. If you look in First Samuel chapter 2, in verse 11, it closes the prayer, it says, Then Elkanah, that is the, the husband of Hannah, went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then in verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, They did not know the Lord. What a powerful verse. Can you imagine the only thing that Scripture really has to say about you is that you were worthless men? That's tough. But Eli's sons, Phinehas and Hophni, were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. They they weren't, by our standards, they weren't saved. Now their dad was the high priest. They'd grown up with it. They knew it. They understood it. They could wear the garments, they could hang out at the tabernacle, they could make the sacrifices, they could do the job, but they were worthless because they didn't know God. They're worthless because they don't honor the sacrifices. In verse 13, the custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fort brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No. You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This will become a reoccurring problem with Israel. You read the Old Testament throughout, that they will treat the things of God with contempt. Those who were supposed to be guardians of holiness... Guardians of the standard of righteousness as as laid out in the laws of Moses in terms of, of what God expects from men. We're treating it with contempt. Not only are they taking the sacrifices they're not supposed to take for their personal enjoyment... But there were women ministering at the tabernacle. Now, we don't know exactly what they did. We know the precedence is set in Exodus 38.8 that women will minister in some capacity at the tabernacle. We don't know what they did, but the Scriptures say that that as these women ministered, the two sons of uh, Eli used them for sexual pleasure. They're holding the things of God in contempt. Lee Robertson, a popular preacher of years gone by, was famous for the statement that everything rises and falls on leadership. It's true today as it was in his day. Everything rises and falls on leadership. In Israel's day, the leadership didn't take God seriously. They didn't take holiness seriously. And their nation paid the price. In America today, if if judgment starts at the house of God, then it will be because Christianity, or Christians, didn't take holiness seriously. They didn't take the things of God seriously, and the nation suffers for it. Just this past summer, May 5th and 6th to be exact, Hillsong United, a popular Christian band, wrote a lot of great songs, hosted a women's conference in New York. During the conference, they had a local youth minister appear on stage as the naked cowboy. He walked up on stage in nothing but briefs, a cowboy hat and boots, and a guitar placed over his midsection to give the illusion. The women cheered him. Several in their own circles wrote articles condemning it, and they were in turn condemned for being too religious and too judgmental. The naked cowboy himself, a New York icon... Times Square I've never been to New York it's a good reason probably to stay away is himself an ordained minister who condemned Hillsong United in saying that look I would never wear my work clothes to my church it's an odd situation when you've got an ordained minister who works as a naked cowboy condemning a Christian organization for using the naked cowboy. But that's where we're at. You're at a place, and and even Christian culture and society, where somebody sat there and thought, hey, I've got a good idea. Let's do this. And then people cheered them and condemned those who said it was wrong. You see, when the people of God don't believe in holiness or righteousness or that it should have any practical effect in life. You cannot expect the nation to believe that. And so as the nation falls apart morally, where do we look? We look at the church, which seems to also be falling apart morally. And in terms of our holiness and practical righteousness, we overemphasize in some cases liberty. Now we have liberty. It's been granted to us to do what? To sin? As Paul puts it, God forbid, but to live righteously, to walk in holiness. It's not that we're under the standards of men, no. It's that we're under the standards and righteousness of God, and that that should play out in life. That we who claim Christ should be different than those who don't claim Christ. Dallas Willard passed away recently, last few years. He was a professor of philosophy. At the University of Southern California, a lot of uh, many good books, great books on discipleship and, and Christian formation. And he made this statement, I thought was interesting. The law does not make us righteous, but it does guide us in righteousness. You see, as we look at the standards set forth in Scripture, no living to certain standards and having certain standards aren't going to make you righteous. We understand that. The things that we, the lists that we make, the do's and the don'ts and all these things, they don't make you righteous. But if you are righteous, you will have standards. You will have things that you simply won't do, lines that you will not cross. Because there is a holy God above. And we are his ambassadors. 1 Peter 1 13 through 16, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we serve a holy God, then that holiness again should be manifest in our life. Not serving, as Peter puts it, our former ignorance. What we didn't know. What we weren't aware of. But as you as as Christians, if you studied Scripture, and you should be studying Scripture, as you've read the Word, as you've been involved in worship, you know a holy God. And then that should play out in a holy life. And who we are, Peter is echoing Leviticus 11.44. That again, because God is holy, we should be holy. The glory departed from Israel because her religious leaders had forsaken holiness and embraced wickedness. They did not seek to honor God, but instead used their office for wicked gain and mockery of his law. There are many in Christian circles who do the same today. Do you know that there are ordained ministers working in mainline, so to speak, churches... Who are atheist they don't believe there is a God but they pastor churches how I'll tell you it's it's because they believe in Christianity as a philosophy as simply a way to live but not as a uh, as something that is supernatural as something that is life-changing it is simply just another philosophy to adopt not a person to be known in terms of Christ we have taken what is holy and made it less than. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six. 26 is, is God, much later in Israel's history, again telling why he has leveled judgment against Israel. And he puts it this way through Ezekiel. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. That is a terrifying thought, that even in the assembly of those who who claim to know and worship God, that we would take the holy and make it common. That we would take what is unclean and try to make it clean. That we would disregard his holy days and that he would be profaned among his own people. Again, if judgment starts at the house of God, let us be careful to ensure that the glory doesn't depart here, that we uh, do not take again holy things and make them common, that we make them unclean. 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 36, if you will look there, this is the outworking, ultimately. This is sort of the, the private judgment on Eli's family. As a man of God, it says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus, sa- thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And he shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. When God brings judgment, he doesn't mess around. Eli is finding that out. That's a pretty harsh thing. There's not going to be an old man in your house forever. Oh, and I'm going to take both your sons on the same day. Ultimately because you honored them before you honored me. Look, we should be careful in our homes and how we raise. Eli had gone through the motions. There's a a lack of content, a lack of character to what he did, and his sons saw that and his sons acted on it. And his sons, look, they make their own decisions. I believe in that element of free will and the choice that they make. They become their own men, but at the same time, they're following to some degree the example set by their father. They're just taking it further. You see, our kids, as often said, and it's sometimes terrifying for all of us as parents, they will take your flaws and amplify them in their own lives. We have to be careful. What kind of faith do we live at home how do we display and demonstrate holiness at home? If we're one way on Sunday mornings or at a retreat or uh, at a service, if we're one way there and we're another way at home. Our kids pick up on that. They understand that. They see that hey, it's okay, I get it. I understand now how to play the game. When I go to church on Sunday, there's certain things I don't say. I don't use the the language that we use at home. I have, to, I have to be a certain way. I have to project a certain image. But it's cool. When church is over and we go to lunch, it's back to the same old, same old. We're back to normal. You have to be careful in whether or not at home we've taken the holy and made it common. There's a judgment. Fathers, mothers, understand that there are times our sins destroy our children. That is a terrifying thought. That the mistakes that we make the things that we do, the sin that we engage in, they feel. They bear the brunt. They bear the consequences of. That sin is never just personal. It's never just to the man. It always has far-reaching implications. But it's not just that they've taken the holy made a or that they despise the holy. Secondly, in these four chapters, there is a distinct lack of spiritual discernment. There is a distinct lack of spiritual discernment. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, you go back to that as we mentioned, this is the narrative where Hannah is coming to pray for a child. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 12 it says as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, "How long will you go on being drunk?" Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Look, scholars have suggested that Eli wasn't used to seeing this level of spiritual devotion, and he didn't know what to do. He didn't have, in other words, the spiritual discernment in the temple to understand the difference between a drunken woman at the altar and a woman, as she puts it, who is vexed in her spirit and pouring out her soul before God. He didn't know the difference. Couldn't see the difference, didn't understand the difference. Eli had lost the spiritual discernment necessary to be a minister of God, a minister before God. He couldn't effectively help until Hannah had made it plain and obvious what was actually going on. There was a judgment, a lack of judgment, a lack of discernment on his end. It's not the only time in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 1 through 8. Again, as you turn there, See, turning also helps you stay awake because you're like, oh, I gotta go here now. First Samuel chapter three, I won't read through those eight verses, but as Samuel is called, look, Samuel doesn't understand it. But he's a boy who's just doing his thing in the temple. Eli, Samuel goes to him the first time, he's like, Hey, somebody called me. What do you what do you want? He said, Look, what me, go back to bed. Second time Samuel hears the voice, Samuel rises, goes to Eli, and Eli says, Look, it's not me. Go back to bed. Like when you guys have, your you know, you're trying to go to bed, and your kids keep getting up like, I need a glass of water. And you're like, look, you had water, go to bed. And they get up like, I just, I, I need to talk to you now. Now? He like, go back to bed. Finally, the third time he comes. Verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in its place. Now, look, like you might say, well, in fairness to Eli, the word of God, as was mentioned in, in as the chapter mentions in verse one, the word of God was rare in those days. People were not hearing His voice. He didn't have necessarily a prophet who spoke all the time. There's the one in chapter two who delivers the judgment, but otherwise, the word of God is rare. But as Eli sits there. Again, being a man who is ministering to the Lord at the place, at the tabernacle of Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant is present, Eli should have had some understanding of what was going on before the third time. And he doesn't. There's a lack of spiritual discernment. He seems to be too much a part of this world. You and I as Christians, we are expected to show discernment. We're expected to avoid evil and to seek good. Now, I know oftentimes in, in our circles, it can be tempting to, to, man, how much, how close to the world can I get in my liberty and not cross that line? That's, that's not what it is. It really is still a matter of how far away can I stay in holiness before my God, be different to the world around me. One of my favorite illustrations of this, I, I don't think it's a true story, but I think it makes the point. King was looking for a new chariot driver. He had a mountain Next to the palace and this is where he would test his chariot drivers and he brought out two guys These two guys were were highly vaunted as being able to control the chariot and control the horses and they knew horse They knew horses rather they had a level of horsemanship As they get he takes the first guy the first guy puts the king in the chariot and they go riding up the mountain man And this guy is as close to the edge as he can get But due to his skill and his dexterity and all of these sort of things he keeps the chariot from going off the side The king's like man, that's impressive the second guy, he gets in the chariot. The guy hugs the side of the mountain, like some of us when we drive anywhere in the mountains. You're as close to the, to the interior of the mountain as you can get. He goes slow. He slows down on the corners. And it takes him longer to get up the hill, but they get up there, and the king's like, again, very impressive. And they ask him, well, who are you going to choose? And he chose the second man. He said, because with the second man, there's room for error. With the first guy, there's no room for error. And errors happen. I don't care how good the skill is. At some point, that wheel is going to go, or the side is going to collapse. Look, when we live as close to the world as we can, and only add Jesus, eventually something's going to give. We're going to find that we've strayed further than we intended. But if we stay as close as we can to the standard of Scripture, to the holiness of God, then if we err, the error perhaps is not as great. See, we need spiritual discernment, not to be as much like the world as we can and, and have Jesus too, but to be as far away and show the love of Christ and the holiness of God through the kind of persons that we are. We've, we oftentimes today as well forsake discernment in favor of confusion. We claim not to know the will of God while we ignore his word. I talk with my students this sometimes, you know, what's, what's the will of God for my life, Mr. Cogger? Look, I can't, I can't tell you exactly, I wouldn't want to. Now, I tease them sometimes and I say, well, look, the will of God... Maybe McDonald's, if your grades don't come up, all right? But that's, that's something you've got to decide. What's the will of God for my life? Who am I going to marry? Where should I go to school? Look, all of those things will happen in time. But you know what? Right now, the will of God for you is study scripture. Be involved somewhere worshiping him. Live right. Avoid evil. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you will do what's already there in Scripture, what He has blatantly told you, this is my will for you, the other things will become clear. You will know as you see it. You will know as you come to it. Do the will of God that's already been revealed, but we don't know. And then we'll say, and and this is again a personal favor, we claim that the Holy Spirit's not convicted us because it doesn't say something explicitly in Scripture. Well, the Bible never talks about that. I saw some of you who know me know that I'm a fan of a Christian satire site known as the Babylon Bee. If you have no idea what that is, you should check it out. It's hilarious. They make fun of everybody. If you're easily offended, don't look. You'll be upset. All right, but they make fun of everybody, and it's great. But they had an article they posted this last week written by a convicted felon. And I won't go through it. He said, but this was great. He says, you know, he says, want to know what I'm incredibly tired of? Christians speaking out against felony home invasion. I'll never understand why self-described followers of Christ feel so comfortable rallying around a topic that Jesus never even mentioned. Can you name one single time Jesus specifically addressed this issue, that is, felony home invasion? No, you can't. If you disagree with me, then by all means, point your Bible to the verse where Jesus explicitly says, do not engage in either first, second, or third degree home invasion. Please show me the verse where Jesus says, do not forcibly enter the house of another with the intent to commit a felony, larceny, or or assault once inside. He says, or just save yourself the time because those verses are nowhere to be found. He says, but guess what? Here are a few things Jesus really did say. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Luke 6.28. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Luke 6.29. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Luke 6.30. Written by Again, it's satire, but you understand you will encounter people all the time who say, look, Jesus never said this was wrong. Well, no, but you're supposed to have discernment to distinguish between good and evil. He never said felony home invasion was wrong, but you should have discernment to distinguish between good and evil. We need it desperately in our world today and understanding how we ought to live Three, first, they took the holy for contempt, or they they made what was holy contemptible. Secondly, they lacked spiritual discernment. But three, they mistook the physical for the spiritual. They mistook the the physical for the spiritual. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, as the narrative moves on, Israel is once again engaged in battle with the Philistines. They have this sort of, going back even into the Judges, they have this sort of long-running war with the Philistines. Usually in the text, the Philistines have the upper hand, at least until the time of David. David does a very good job of of essentially wiping the Philistines off the face of the earth. But prior to this, there's this sort of intermittent war with the Philistines, various battles that are going on. And in verses 3 through 9... Read the text, the the Israelites were struggling. And in verse three it says, And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. <clears throat> Excuse me, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, for who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. You see, Israel thought... We could bring in the Ark of the Covenant as a weapon of mass destruction. We get it out there, man, and God will go before us, and we'll destroy the Israel, or we'll destroy the Philistines. And even the Philistines are like, man, this is bad news. They knew this. Look, this, this is the God who wiped out Egypt. We're in trouble. And I love their rally cry that even though they're looking you know, at a very bad situation, and they recognize that, they're like, okay, be men and fight. Better to die than be slaves. And they go out and they fight and they win. And Israel's distressed. Then it leads then to the phrase at the end of chapter 4 that the glory is departed. If the Ark of the Covenant can't help us, then what can we do? You know what they did? Again, they mistook the physical for the spiritual. They failed to realize that it wasn't about the Ark. It was about the Covenant. And they had violated the Covenant. And in violating the Covenant, the God of the Ark of the Covenant was no longer going to bless them, was no longer going to be present. We sometimes think that the physical is evidence of the blessing of God. We overemphasize it. We think that grand buildings and multiple campuses or large numbers mean that God is blessing and that He is with us. Listen, you realize that Joel Osteen has the largest congregation in America, something along the lines of 43,500 members. And I'll say right now, you may think it's unloving, but he's a heretic who is leading people down a path of destruction. Largest congregation in America. That doesn't include his media outreach or his homes or all the things that he has. Is God blessing that? No. See, it's not about numbers, and it's not about size, and it's not about all the external things that we can do. It's about whether or not we know God or serving God and are valuing His holiness. We sometimes think it's about our personal standards. I come from a a very conservative brand of of sort of Baptist Christianity. And we sometimes, it can be easy to think that, man, the standards that I have, now look, we talked earlier, you need standards. But again, the standards that I have, I'm, I'm better I have a lot of things I do and I don't do because I'm more righteous. What's wrong? There should be a spiritual change that leads to, to heavy standards, but again, it's never about the standards themselves. It's never about the outward and what we do and all the ways that we try to look good. We think that if we have the physical things that God is blessing us, we forget like Elijah forgot. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Kings 19, 9 through 14, Elijah's just done an amazing thing in terms of the, the prophets of Baal. The, he, he almost single-handedly killed them all to the glory of God. And now he's running away from Ahab and Jezebel and he's hiding in a mountain and he's ready to die and he's telling the Lord in this, this fit of depression, he's like, man, I, only, I was the only one left who was serving you. And he wasn't. But sometimes when you're depressed, it's, it's not easy to see Uh, the other good things going on. And the Lord comes, and it says in Scripture that there was a mighty wind that tore the mountain, but God wasn't in the wind. There was an earthquake that split rocks, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There was a mighty fire that came and consumed, but it wasn't in the fire. And where did Elijah find the Lord? In a still, small voice or a quiet whisper. You see, oftentimes it's not about the big dramatic things and the physical presence and all of this kind of stuff. Sometimes it's simply about what's going on in the heart and how we are honoring the Lord in that. Jesus deals with the same issue throughout his ministry, in particular in the Gospel of John. He is constantly trying to draw people from the physical to the spiritual. Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the whole idea of you must be born again, and Nicodemus is like, whoa, wait, question. How do you get born again? Can I enter, as he says, into my mother's womb and be born again? Look, Nicodemus is a scholar. You should know better than to ask that question. But I think he's asking Jesus, do we get a chance somehow to, are you saying that physically we get to redo this thing? And Jesus said, no, no, no. No, you're born of the spirit. It's a spiritual thing. He sees it again in, in John chapter 4 with a woman at the well where she's wanting water. And he says, look, if you'd asked, I'd give you living water. And she says, well, look, give me this water so I never have to drink again. She doesn't get it. I'm not talking about physical water. I'm talking about water of life, eternal life, a life that's meaningful, even as they talk about where you ought to worship, she's like, well, I know you guys, the Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here at Mount Gerizim, and we're right. And he says, look, I'm going to tell you, the day's going to come where it's not going to matter where you're worshiping, but how you're worshiping, in spirit and in truth. He so said, it's not about the physical location. It's not about all the, that stuff that we get hung up on. We see in John as well that people stop following him because he quits giving them bread. They follow because, man, they're getting lunch for free, and when he stops doing that, they're like, no, nah, we're out. He says, well, look, it's it's because I'm the bread of life, but I'm not going to give you bread like Moses did. I'm giving you better bread than Moses did. We as Christians, again, the same thing. We think, well, look, if I follow Jesus, the health and wealth and and all these sort of things are going to come with it. Not necessarily. Majority of Christians today around the world live in poverty, are suffering for the faith. They don't have the things that American Christianity has. You see... Following Christ, following the Lord, has never been about the physical trappings that come with it. It's always been about the spiritual nature of it, who we are and what he's done for us on that realm. And that is the most important. So they mistook the physical for the spiritual. So what's the answer? We take the holy and we make it contemptible. If we lack spiritual discernment, if our focus is on the physical and not the spiritual end, In those three cases then, that that applied, the glory departs. God no longer blesses, God's no longer with. What can we do? I can't get into the narratives that are to come, but I'll tell you this. You seek the word of God, the will of God, and you repent before God. You get back into Scripture and understanding what it is that the Lord requires. What does He value? And making what He values then a part of what we value making his standards as much as we can our standards, drawing lines in the sand that we will not cross because we serve a holy God, and repenting of those areas where we have let holiness fall by the wayside, where we have thrown discernment out the door, where we've thought that physical blessings or physical gain means spiritual blessing. Understanding, again, what the Lord wants to do in our lives as he wanted to do in Israel. It was all about bringing them back to true knowledge of himself and worship according to spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for what's recorded there. We thank you for the prophet Samuel, Lord, for his life and where he served you and the things that he did and the courage, the stands that he took. Lord, we also thank you for the examples of those that uh, unfortunately didn't serve you and bore the consequences of that. Lord, help us to learn, to apply these things to our own lives, that we might be faithful servants, that we might honor you. We thank you for your love for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.